0: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 434.
1: Sometimes people are very attached to being the victim. So when they can always walk into the office and say like, oh gosh, I got no sleep last night. Like they want to be the martyr. They attract attention to themselves by always having something a little bit wrong. If they got their needs met, they wouldn't have something to complain about.
0: As we reach the peak of the great resignation, two veteran executive coaches are helping today's leaders learn how to retain and inspire their teams through the one thing their research has found works, and that's leading with heart. Hi, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each week, we sit down with another author and we talk about their latest book and their unique insights on a variety of topics. Today, it's two authors for the price of one, and those authors are John Baird and Edward Sullivan. They've written a book called Leading with Heart, Five Conversations that Unlock Creativity, Purpose, and Results. I'll be asking John and Edward about some of the major differences between heart-led companies and fear-led companies, the nuances between healthy and unhealthy expressions in the workplace of what we ultimately want, how our gifts can sometimes come from places we wouldn't necessarily expect, and a whole lot more. Well, this month, my second note-making mastery kicks off. In fact, it kicks off today, August 2nd. We've got another full cohort. If you missed this one, but you want to be notified the next time I do a note-making mastery cohort, then be sure and get on the notifications list. You can do that by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. Not sure if it's right for you. Let me ask you a question. How many books have you read in the past year? Did you take notes from those books? Yeah, well, have you done anything with those notes since? Do you even know where they are? And assuming you do, would they be of much use to you in their present form, or would you first have to invest substantial time bringing your brain up to speed with what past you was thinking? Think about this for a moment. When your notes go pretty much nowhere, it's no different than if you've never consumed the content you took the notes on in the first place. Now, I realize those are kind of harsh words, but if no outputs from you are being generated from consuming those books or podcasts or TED Talks or online articles, what's the point? Your notes should be leading to meaningful results and outputs not going to waste. And if that's something you'd like to change, then that's what Note Making Mastery, the cohort, is all about. August's cohort is full, but if you'd like to get on the list for the next one, again, it's read dot com slash list. John Baird is one of the premier executive coaches in Silicon Valley. And over the past 25 years, he's worked with top leaders at startup organizations, as well as Fortune 500 firms like Apple, Nike, and Twitter. He's founded several companies, including the Velocity Group, where he is currently chairman and serves as a fellow at Sapphire Ventures and on various nonprofit and local and national boards. Edward Sullivan is the CEO and managing partner at Velocity Group. His 25-year career as an executive coach and political consultant has taken him around the globe coaching and advising startup founders. Fortune 500 executives, and heads of state of foreign nations. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, Fast Company, USA Today, and NASDAQ, among others. Their book together, which has spent two weeks on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list recently, is called Leading with Heart, Five Conversations that Unlock Creativity, Purpose, and Results. It is my pleasure to have both of you guys on, Edward. I'll start with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And John, uh, I, I saved you for last for no particular reason, uh, but welcome to the show. <laughs>
2: oh, thanks very much. It's great to be here, Jeff.
0: I would say I saved the best for last, but then that would offend Edward. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we don't want to offend Edward.
0: <laughs> well, well, let me start with Edward, uh, too, with the first question. Uh, when, I, when I hear the phrase leading with heart, I remember a book called Love Works from, from Joel Manby years ago. Yes. And, and bringing love into the workplace. And it was like, eh, I don't know, it was touchy-feely. And I, I kind of had that sort of same feeling when I think of, of leading with heart and you know, being chummy uh-huh. or making others feel good. But, but what is it really about?
1: So, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question right out of the gate because we do get this a lot. Mm. And I actually think that the nature of the question points to the importance of the work. Uh, we often avoid the things that are hard. We try to like dismiss them by saying, oh, well, that's just the touchy-feely stuff. That's the chummy stuff. But actually, this is the hard work right? It's easy to, you know, sit there by yourself and code all day. It's really difficult to work with other people. <laughs> and, you know, we found that instead of this being about being chummy or making people feel good, it's about helping people operate at, uh, in an optimal way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we can lead with heart, if we connect, can connect with people, if we can make them feel psychologically safe, we're actually activating their prefrontal cortex in a much more um, interesting and effective way than if we're operating by fear. You know, John and I like to say that we are on a crusade to put the soft skills at the center, meaning, uh, you know, for years we've been talking about, it's all about the hard skills. Oh, and if you do a little bit of the soft skill stuff, that's fine, you know, but guess what? The number one most oversubscribed course at Stanford Business School is what they call the touchy-feely class. And that's basically the class where everyone learns how to work with others. So we wouldn't have a job. We wouldn't be running this company if uh, this work weren't so important and so difficult for so many people.
0: And, and the reality too is, Edward, isn't it that uh, I think I read in your book that at any given time, 50% of employees are, are looking to go somewhere else?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. 50% of employees are thinking about going somewhere else. Just saw a Gallup poll from a couple months ago that said one in four employees are planning to go somewhere else this year. Mm. It's incredible.
0: Let me move to that that next question that you hinted mm. at, Edward, and go to go to John. What would you say, John? Are the major differences between heart led companies and and fear led companies? How can how can we kind of distinguish between the two, mm. real simply?
2: Well, I th- I think it really boils down to the subtitle Jeff of the book, and that's the conversations. I think heart led companies have the difficult conversations, and. I'd like to add to Edward's comments uh, around the the soft and the hard skills and talking about it, but we do find heart-led companies get results. Why? Because they have the difficult conversations. And that could be about things that people are thinking, that product is not going to be good if we launch it now. Why didn't they talk about that at the right time? Why are we afraid? So, I mean, I think heart-led companies have the tough conversations. They have safety. There's not a lot of finger-pointing outside of the room. They actually have the, the safety in, in, in the team, and they have the ability to have those conversations in a respectful way, but they're not afraid to have them. And that's the big difference, I think. And it does end up actually impacting the bottom line.
0: Well, let's dig into some of those conversations, the questions that you talked about that the book's subtitle alludes to. The first one is, what do you need to be at your best? And I love the examples you begin. I think it's in the introduction of the book between a CEO who does this really, really well and a leader who doesn't do it so well, who who makes some assumptions oftentimes. And I know I've been guilty in the past of of making assumptions when in facing issues with difficult coworkers or or a direct report. And I love that though these questions are simple, like what do you need to be at your best? They elicit additional questions, right? Edward, what what are some of these additional questions that this conversation starter in particular? Tends to to prompt. Yeah,
1: we we find that one of the great failures of leaders is to assume everyone needs the same thing, right? We come in and say, you know, mm. everyone needs um, a certain amount of feedback, or everyone needs a certain amount of kudos, certain amount of affirmation. Even the assumption that everyone needs a, the same amount of sleep, right? Like we're so different as human beings that th- the challenge here in this chapter is for leaders to allow, create allowances for people to get their needs met in different ways so the the additional questions that come up when we're thinking about what do you need to be at your best, um, we actually break them down into three main categories. it's like, what do you need physically to be at your best you know in terms of how much you're sleeping, are you a meditator, how much are you eating, how much do you exercise? We all have different a different constellation of needs in that category, and I think the best leaders are creating allowances for people to get their own needs met in their own right combination right so Great leaders are asking those questions like, are you an early riser? Do you do your work best late at night? Can we create allowances for that, for you to do your best work when you feel optimal throughout the day? Mm -hmm. Um, Another great question that comes up is, what do you need to feel psychologically safe? Because the emotional needs are some of the most important ones and they're often the most overlooked. Leaders focus so much attention on what they need their teams to get done. I have this deadline. You need to deliver this for me. I need you to do that. They're not actually thinking about What does this person need to feel creative, to feel optimal psychologically? Mm. Some people need a lot of affirmation. They want to hear once a day, attaboy, you're doing a great job. That keeps them motivated, right? Other people need to feel included. They want to feel like they're in on the meetings, they have the right information, they're they're part of the in crowd. And a leader has to get very curious about what each different individual on their team needs to do their best work you know, we've got a lot more questions in the chapter about that, but that's kind of the crux of it.
0: Mm. Sort of a follow-up to that, Edward, why is it we fail to get particular needs met even when we know what to do?
1: Mm. So I think personally, we often don't get our needs met because what we talk about in the book is we have conflicting commitments, right? Mm. So some people will say like, I really need to get more sleep, but I have this, this standing call with my I'm making this story up. I have a standing call with my mother who lives in Europe and we talk every morning when she wakes up, which is midnight for me. So I never go to bed before 2 a.m., right? <laughs> and it's like, just because you love your mother doesn't mean you can't get any sleep. So we have this conflicting commitment. Mm. Um, sometimes a con- the conflicting commitment is a little bit less, less on the nose than that. And it's sometimes like a deeper commitment. Sometimes people are very attached to being the victim. Mm -hmm. Um, So, when they can always walk into the office and say like, oh, gosh, I got no sleep last night. Like, they want to be the martyr. They want to, you know, they attract attention to themselves by always having something a little bit wrong. If they got their needs met, they wouldn't have something to complain about. So, we really have to start thinking more deeply, what are we getting out of not getting our needs met? Mm -hmm. And when we have that conversation with ourselves or help other people we work with, or even a partner have those conversations, we can sometimes have great breakthroughs.
2: It reminds me a little bit, Jeff, of an example that uh, around needs of a a CEO that we work with who uh, created a sleep room in his organization. And it was really around, and it wasn't because of any coaching that I had done or anybody had done. He identified the fact that he just needed sleep at a certain time of the day that his energy was just waning. And if he got that 30 minutes of sleep. So in this organization now, there is this sleep room with a sign that says sleep room. (laughs) And actually it's a a place for people to go when they just need to just unplug, Mm. just to get away from it. And I think it's a great sign of a leader to be able to say, you know, you can't be at your best unless you have energy. Mm. And sometimes we need energy just to sort of uh, get away from it all and and think through things or even sleep in that sense. So it reminded me, Edward, of that example of the yeah. sleep room. <laughs> so.
0: The former mentor of mine used to champion uh, naps. So I'm all, I'm all about it.
2: Yeah. About the naps. yeah. Yes. Uh,
0: another question that great leaders can ask is is, what fears are holding you back? But I want to talk about this from the standpoint of the leader themselves, what trouble do we face, John, when there are unacknowledged fears at the leadership level?
2: Yeah. Well, it's a big one. And I think the book, uh, that chapter is, is, I think, one that really points at some of the major issues around leadership is that we don't acknowledge those fears at all. In our coaching work, we actually peel back The Onion and try to get at those things because we do, Jeff, a lot of 360 feedback where Mm. we get feedback on the on the CEO or the leader. And in one case, it's interesting. We got a lot of feedback that. And of course, I observed this group in action as well, how this leader needed to have everything perfect. The whole perfectionist sort of syndrome. Mm. Uh, We talk about this in the fear chapter. And also he was a very strong skeptic. So on his Hogan, the Hogan is a, a, a self-perception instrument that looks at what needs people have comes up very high in the skepticism scale. I think his skepticism and perfectionism got the company to a certain place, like it was like he, he was very product driven, it was a wonderful mm-hmm. product, high quality. But as he hired new people, particularly experienced people from other companies, people began to say, "Where am I in this? I'm never right." He's always right. He's the smartest person in the room. So, By peeling back the onion getting him to acknowledge why he had this need to have everything perfect and how he had to prove things. In this case, he had to prove it all to family, parents. It was like he was never the smartest. He was never acknowledged as the smartest person in his family. He was actually trying to prove to his dad that he was okay. So once we identified that and he named that fear, so naming fear is important, acknowledge some of that. that. It got other people to actually acknowledge their fears and the team became a different team.
0: Which is why what you guys do is so great. It 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 helps facilitate. You talked about hard conversations. These are not easy. No. Having having a team uh, like you guys come in to to facilitate that is is huge. Edward, I want I want to move to you now with this third question slash conversation related to our desires. Talk a bit about the nuances between healthy and unhealthy expressions of of those desires in the workplace.
1: Sure. When you go into the workplace, you realize that. Everyone has their own motivators, right? Everyone's driven by something else, and we like to think that those are related to our, our core desires. You know, do you simply want to win? Are you one of those per- people who's just competitive? And it's like the thrill of winning. Do you like to lead? Do you want some power, right? Does that really make you feel make you feel motivated? Other people are those kind of people. They just want to be of service, right? They just really want to be out there and. We want to be aligned with our service. Other people love to learn. And so different things make all of us excited. We like to say that if, if the needs, getting your needs met makes you ready to do your best work, your desire is what motivates you to do your best work. Mm. But as we talk about in the book, um, and as you alluded to, all of these desires, if overplayed, can lead to derailing behavior, mm. right? So if you are too competitive, you can perhaps resort to unscrupulous behavior. You can cheat. We've seen this, unfortunately, you know, huge uh, problems that have come up in sports, and we see that in in the in the world of business as well. Even being of service, if overplayed, can become a negative behavior because we can become people pleasing. We can accept unacceptable behavior from others. We can just placate. So what we really try to do is we want to help leaders understand where that balance is. How do you help your you know get your own? Um, desires met, so you're feeling motivated. How do you do that with your team? But how do you keep it measured so that it's not cascading into these derailing behaviors? You know, mm-hmm. every big scandal we see in the uh, in the business world or in the celebrity world is actually due to someone who was getting their their desires met, and then it cascaded. It went too far. That's how, unfortunately, you know, we can talk about like politicians who ruin their careers. With certain desires that just went way too far, right?
2: Yeah, it's 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 interesting, Edward. Your comment about desires it's it's one of those chapters that I, as I read the book again, it's interesting, Jeff. You write this book and then you talk about it, and you kind of go back to it. It's the one of my I'm identifying with even more that I don't deal enough with with mm-hmm. my clients. And so I mentioned Jeff the Hogan, which is has a you look at values, it looks at potential strengths but it's known for the side that's called the dark side and it's the challenges and in that Hogan comes out lots of things. I've had clients that, as I look back, I probably should have done even more with this around that desire. But when they come out high on bold and colorful and imaginative and just being the center of attention, fun loving, they have to be the person that is actually there getting all the credit for everything. And th- those behaviors do end up catching up with you if overdone. And so, helping them identify those early on, getting those in control, awareness, self awareness is critical to leading with heart. If you're not self-aware of some of these things, self-awareness doesn't mean change. You can be aware and not change something. You can Mm -hmm. be aware that you're not a good listener and not change. But with coaching, we can actually help people engage in daily activities and even with their teams that actually can put those things in check, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing.
0: Something that I I learned going on to the the next uh, conversation here, uh, something I learned in my career, because it was modeled so well for me, was recognizing the gifts in others. I had a leader for Uh years who was just so gifted at that. It just came so naturally to him, the unrecognized gifts oftentimes in others. Talk a bit about that, John, and also how sometimes those gifts can come from places that we wouldn't necessarily expect them to come from.
2: Yeah. I think we don't acknowledge our gifts enough. Right, we don't talk about uh, the things that we do well. I mean, you ask people to list the things that they don't do well; they can list twenty of them. <laughs> ask them the things they they are really good at, and it's like, oh my gosh, what what am I good at? It's like I know what that is around validation and support and approval, uh, just in general, but. I think um, we try in leading with heart and also in team building activities to allow people to express the things they value about people. It reminds me, Ed, of our classic example in the book of, of what speed dating and the iPhone have in common. I don't know, Jeff, if you sort of remember that in the book. But it's the example about John Rubenstein at Apple when we did early work with the iPhone team. Mm. Uh, And this was a group that was not getting along with each other, pointing fingers. Uh, John was very frustrated because he was kind of at the center. They would come to him with all the things that are wrong with everybody else in the group. The team was not functioning at the right level. And Steve was getting really upset that things were not happening. And you can see when productivity isn't happening with the team. So Mm. he hired us to actually come into the team and to uh, do an exercise that we now, it's kind of classic, right, Edward? We (laughs) we call it now speed dating. What we did, Jeff, is we had everybody um, do one-on-ones with everybody in the group. And they had like seven, eight minutes to go around the room. So eight people on the team, this took a couple of hours. And they were spread out around the room and they had to respond to three questions. One, what do you most value about that person in working together? What's working well? What's your greatest gift? Mm. What's not working well in the relationship? And then how can we actually support each other better and work better together? Mm. It brought out lots of gifts, things that people talked about that others could help with. We came back into the large group, conducted a debrief, and it actually was one of those exercises that John claims, turned that team around <laughs> and, and helped move that product to the right place. But unrecognized gifts were surfaced and validation of what was working with people and also what needed to work better. They had some difficult conversations as well.
0: You mentioned this, uh, I think, John, that we, we tend to devalue our gifts or not recognize certain mm-hmm. attributes about ourselves as gifts in the first place. I think because they come so naturally to us, to other people, though, those things that come naturally to us can be magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yes, yes. That's such a great point. And it, I think just talking about that. Mm. It is hard for people to talk about what they're good at. I don't know what that's about for people uh, to be able to say the thing that I bring to this team that is of most value is this. Mm-hmm. And others may not know that. And it, it is it's it's hard. Yeah, some people they have no problems talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but others do. So this is a conversation that if facilitated in the right way, in a respectful way, I think it can be very powerful and identify some things that people didn't know about each other.
1: I think one of the reasons we undervalue our gifts is exactly because they come so naturally to us. It's it, We didn't have to work for it. We didn't go to school for it. We don't have any special training, right? I was told once that my gift was empathy. And I was like, empathy, what are you talking about? How is that a gift? You know, I I didn't get a graduate degree in empathy. I didn't study that for six years, but- Oftentimes, and you alluded to this in in your question uh, a couple minutes ago, oftentimes our gifts are something that we were given or we were earned through experiences early in life. Maybe it comes through some experience in childhood. Mm. Maybe it's related to our relationship with our parents. And so we we learn to be good at something at a very young age, and we go through life just doing it naturally. We assume everyone else can do it too, Mm. because it just comes naturally to us. And then someday someone says, you're really good at this one special thing. You're like, that old thing? you know. I, I thought everybody could do that. Why would anyone value that? And very often it takes a leader, it takes a professor, a mentor to say, no, 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 that's very special. And you should leverage that more. And you know, sometimes a leader would say, in fact, I'm going to move you to a different place in the company because we need more of that over there. And then you see people just take off, right? So I just wanted to double click on that one.
2: Well, you know, it's it's interesting, Edward. That's such a great point about just recognizing gifts. Some companies, Jeff, are really good at rather than getting rid of people, they'll make a lateral move because, you know, this was not a fit. This role is not a fit for you. But over here, Apple does this well. Apple, before rather than just saying you're gone... Let's look at we hired you, you've been here five years. For some reason, this is not this is not a fit. Where else in the organization might those gifts be used? I wish more organizations would do that, but actually say, is there a better fit for what you're naturally good at rather than just laying people off or getting rid of people or firing people.
0: last organization I worked for was really good at, at doing that. Every job I had prior to that one, I ha- haven't had a job in nine years, but every job prior to that one. Uh, <laughs>
2: well, this is a job, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is a job. Yes.
0: But, but every job prior to that one, I think I am I maxed out at two years or something like that. But then that right. job I was at for 13 years, oh, um, wow. in part because I, I would recognize when it was time for me to move into something else. And sometimes yeah. someone else would recognize that on my yes. behalf. And, and we yeah. would make that adjustment. Staying with us for just a, a moment yeah. more. Have you guys ever been in situations working with organizations where people think they know what their gifts are, uh, <laughs> but they're not quite self-aware enough to realize it's not really that? Mm.
2: That's a good one for you, Edward. Yeah.
1: That that's a hard one, right? Yeah. That's a hard one. No,
2: that's a little no. bit
0: like like the friend
1: of yours who says, I think I'm gonna move you know to New York to, to sing on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of like, I have heard you sing and oh my goodness, right? <laughs> it's just not so, there, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, so sometimes that's a very interesting corollary. Like sometimes the leader or the partner or the friend has to learn how to have that really honest conversation to help people understand that their dreams and their gifts may be different. Mm. We can sometimes want to be gifted at something, and we mm. we we fixate on it and we dream about it, and that often leads to hardship. Um, not you can't you can't train into everything. Some people have a great voice, and some people don't. Now, some people make now, I'm using the singing because I, I think everyone can identify with uh, the, the dream to be a singer. Some people have made careers out of having a very unique and unconventional voice.
0: Bob Dylan, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, you know, and Bob Dylan also had the, his real gift. Obviously, was the gift of poetry and songwriting.
2: Yeah, oh, the writing.
1: Um, so sometimes, you know, people say, "But I want to. I want to be a star. I want to do this." Mm. And I think the job of the leader is to say. You probably can be a star. You can be great success if you leverage your actual core gift. And this is what I think your core gift is.
2: Yeah. Well, one way, Jeff, we get at that. I know we're doing a lot with gifts. It's a very interesting conversation to me is that when we do 360s, that there's a self-perception of how leaders see themselves. And there's also the perception of others. Sometimes, right, Edward, that gap is great. They see themselves as very good, but others don't see it. And that delta can be a couple of standard deviations at time, which would suggest that there's a lack of awareness around. They think Mm -hmm. they're really good at these things, but they're not. And boy, those are difficult conversations because they've obviously been told for many, many years that they're good at these things and their mm. mindset about that is that way. And so you're really shifting some really important things in, in their heads about who they are. So anyway, it, it's, it's those are tough conversations to have.
0: Mm. One more tough conversation I want to touch on. I'll go to Edward on this one is the, the idea of understanding our purpose. What are some of the conversations around purpose really about, Edward, at, at, at their core?
1: You know, at, at their core, the conversation around purpose is what gives you the most fulfillment and, and feeling of, of meaning in your life. And I think a lot of people right now are feeling aimless. A lot of people are switching jobs. They're not switching jobs because they want more money. Oftentimes, they are leaving toxic work cultures and sometimes they're just feeling aimless. They're not feeling connected to anything. I think when we're doing the best work of our careers, we feel connected to something bigger than ourselves. We feel like we're contributing in an incredible way. We're serving someone or something. And you know, the really amazing leaders are the, the ones who connect the company's purpose with people's individual feeling of purpose, right? Now, some people might say, like, I don't even know what my purpose is. Like, how do I figure out what my purpose is? Mm. And, you know, John and I sometimes say, take a nice long walk on the beach, mm. you know, yeah. spend some time away from thinking about the problem. Mm. It's one of those things that like, you actually can't just like sit down and like write out your purpose. You have to find some place of inspiration. We've had <clears throat> clients who found their purpose traveling in, in South America or in Africa and you know, started companies to serve those communities, right, John? I'm thinking of Matt at, at Remitly, who started a company to make it easier for people who had gone to America or to Europe to submit you know, remittances back to their families in, uh, in other countries rather than paying these exorbitant fees with Western Union. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had other clients who found their sense of purpose through hardship. One client who started a company... And I'm thinking, John, of uh, the founder of Grail, yeah. who started a company to, to cure cancer and for early cancer detection, because unfortunately, he had lost his wife to cancer. So we all find purpose in our own unique way. And I think the challenge for leaders is to have those conversations with employees to help them activate and start thinking about, what is my purpose? And how is that feeling? How am I getting that purpose, feeling of purpose met here in this role?
2: Yeah. And that's so important right now, Jeff, because there's so much going on with the market. You look at economy, you look at the Mm. world, you look at politics, all of this. A lot of companies we're working with are resetting. They're also laying off people. So we suggest to them, it's really important to come back and remind people, about their purpose. And it's very easy to get caught up into products and numbers and and obviously uh, productivity and uh, being able to be uh, profitable is the key thing they're hearing from investors. But the people that are still there that uh, they have retained need to be reminded of why they're there. And so oftentimes leaders forget that. They founded the company for certain reasons, But we're reminding them, connect back to your purpose, remind people why they're here. And Edward and I, right, Edward, have talked a lot about this idea of people who have been retained and how important it is for people, leaders, to actually think about ways to keep them on board. Right, Edward? I mean, that's, that's a conversation that we are having more and more.
1: Yeah. We talk a lot about the great res- resignation. Everyone's talking about the resigners. And John and I have been asking recently, we wrote a couple of articles about like, what about the people who stay? Mm. How are leaders keeping them motivated? How are they keeping them in the seat? And it's easy to throw money at people. It's easy to give them more equity. I think that the, the the simple solve is for leaders to think that, well, if I just shower them with more benefits or with more money, they'll be motivated to stay. And you know, a study that we found from Sloan Business School back in January showed that by a 10 to 1 margin, people people are leaving because of not feeling connected to the role, having bad mm-hmm. bosses, toxic work cultures as opposed to not getting paid enough. So we just we're trying to pay people more to stay in jobs that they don't feel connected to. So the the challenge for leaders isn't how do I find more money to pay these people more? It's how do I connect these people to a real sense of purpose and make them love their work again and mm-hmm. feel like they're contributing and doing something important.
2: Having purpose-led conversations, Jeff, is one-on-one face-to-face is what, what mm. it's all about. So mm. and we're not doing enough of that, particularly during difficult times.
0: And to Edward's point, you can't buy my sanity, no matter how much you can. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple more questions for you. Uh, I'm going to direct it both of you. Um, mm. the first of which, is there anything else from the book I haven't asked about that you'd like to make sure we know, uh, John, I'll start with you and then check wow. in with Edward.
2: No, I think, you know, the feedback on the book has been really awesome. And one of the comments that was made, it just struck me. It just a review on Amazon about how people are coming back to the book and asking the questions. I mean, we didn't write the book to be a recipe. We wanted conversations. Right. And yet people are talking about the fact that these lead ins, these questions. And so I would just say, you know, to people. Just look at those. each of those conversations, have questions at the end, and and ask those questions of yourself as a leader, and then begin to think about ways that those can be conversations with the team. To me, that's the powerful part of the book is is the conversations and how to have them.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll dovetail off that, John. I think when you and I wrote this, right, we wrote it primarily because... We run a small firm there's the two of us we've got 25 coaches we can only work with so many companies and we often get more requests to work with companies than we can meet than we can you know provide services for so we've really decided let's just give it all away like <laughs> let's put in this book all the practices right. um, the exercises we take teams through so I think that one of the bits of feedback I'm getting on the book is that there's a lot of practical there, there, there's practical exercises that mm a leader or someone who's running a team can just open up the book and say here on page, you know, 235, there's an exercise that we can run for the next hour as a team. Mm-hmm. And it will help us increase our sense of trust. It'll help us with our, you know, level set for our planning purposes. And when we're hearing from people that like, hey, I ran that exercise in your book, and oh my goodness, it actually worked. You know, Now I don't even have to hire you guys, right? <laughs> you know, we're, we're getting that feedback, which is uh, really encouraging.
0: I want to talk about books. This is, after all, the Read to Lead podcast. And of course, right. I interview an author each week, or sometimes in this case, authors. I want to know what you're reading or what you've loved to read in the past. What's impacted you? Uh, Edward, I'll start with with you as far as book recommendations go.
1: Yeah, I love this question. and I appreciate you put it in the notes so I could think a little bit about it. And I think two books that have really impacted my work, um, one is one of the classics of of organizational development, and it's Mm. Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Mm. You know, it's one of these fables about this fictitious company he used to work with. But the baseline model, we, we call it the Lencioni pyramid, you know, that... To get to great results, teams have to have great plans. To have great plans, they have to have accountability. To have accountability, they have to have really honest conversations and rigorous debate. And to have rigorous debate, the entire program is based on trust, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where we often start with exercises that help people build trust. Sometimes John and I will do um, an offsite with like a very high powered um, executive team, you know, Fortune 500, um, you know, 30 year executives in the room. And we say, great. So the first thing we're going to do today is you're all going to share stories of failure. You know, we want We call it the loser's lunch. We want everyone, <laughs> as we sit around having lunch together before getting into the afternoon, we're going to talk about failure. Or let's talk about share a story of resilience, share a story from your childhood, something that happened that shaped who you are today. And at first they look around like, I thought we were doing strategic planning today. And <laughs> well, we are, we'll get to that. But first we want to make sure that we're creating that connective tissue that holds you all together. The second book I wanted to talk about, and this was, it was surprising that it came to mind, but I realized it really does inform my work as a coach. And it's a, it's a little known book by a gentleman named David Rico, R-I-C-H-O, and it's called How to Be an Adult in Relationships. It's a book about romantic relationships, but he has such a simple way of thinking about how to create trust in a loving relationship that I realized I think by osmosis, I have brought a lot of the teachings from that book into my work. And I, I called it up on my screen. I just want to name a couple of things here. Um, he has what are called the five A's that he goes through in the book. The first A is attention, engaging focus and attunement, ability to talk about thoughts, feelings, needs, and wishes. Right, John? Like it's right from our book. Yeah, yeah. The second A is acceptance, feeling received respectively uh, with all of our feelings, personal traits, and desires. Um, appreciation, being admired, prized, and respected for our unique gifts and contributions. Affection. This one might be a little bit hard in the workplace, but you know uh, we can be affectionate in our words and kind in our words to our uh, employees, and also allowing, allowing the full range of emotions and um, and and needs to be accepted, uh, as well as um, unique personhood that has space to exist. And I think that's really what, in some way, our work is all about. It's helping people be able to show up as they are, right? For a long time, there was this idea of executive presence. Everyone had to show up with like the perfect suit and the perfect hair and the strong handshake. And, you know, we were all like gravitating towards the mean of like, let's all be the same. And I think one thing that is unique about this next generation of employees is they are demanding to be able to be themselves as funky and weird and unique as they are. And like the best leaders of today are allowing that mm-hmm. and they're celebrating that. I think that's what's uh, a distinguishing characteristics of some of the best leaders of today. So those are my two books, Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team and David Rico's how to be an adult in relationships?
0: That company that I used to work for that I love so much, we read Five Dysfunctions of a Team ah. fifteen plus yeah. years ago, and it was great. You know, fear of conflict uh, was one of those dysfunctions, yeah. and we we learned how to walk through that. And I remember being on the programming side. This was a radio station. Programming was always you know butting heads with the sales side and our general sales manager, Teresa, who I'm dear friends with to this day, uh, we would have some of those conflicts in meetings and mm-hmm. staff meetings and, and spar a little bit. And it was mm-hmm. always funny to watch when there was like somebody brand new on staff who was witnessing this for the first time. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yes.
2: Wondering <laughs> what this was about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do, this is Do they hate it's each like, other?
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's well, it's so
2: funny with that one, Jeff. It's like, I, I did an observation of a team and that, and after I observed them, I said, "This team, you're too nice to each other." <laughs> and yeah. it, it was a family feel, mm-hmm. uh, a family feel, which felt really good for people. But it, it really told me lots of things were not being talked about. Right? I mean, it was just. Nice, nice, nice. Anyway, it's interesting to have those disruptive conversations. When there isn't disruption for me on a team, and that disruption is handled in a respectful kind of a way. And Jeff, to your point, you got to learn how to have those conversations to use right. words. Words are powerful these days. People pick up on the nuances of words and the body language. So the way in which you have difficult conversations becomes critical. And so we, mm-hmm. we get into how to have those conflict conversations in, in our work. For
0: sure. How about you, as far as book recommendations go? Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I, you know, it's funny because I went back to this one and, you know, I thought about, it's funny, (laughs) I'm laughing about this one because it really defines my career a little bit. So I chose the fifth discipline by Peter Senge Mm. and his follow-on book was The Learning Organization. And that's a book that I read when I was at Apple, doing a lot of work at Apple. I took a leave of absence when I taught at the university and was at Apple for a year. And we had a learning group at Apple, and that was the book that we actually read. All of us talked mm-hmm. about, and there's some concepts of that book that still stick with me today. And that is the, the the power of of not judging, of not getting to solutions too quickly, of using what we would call the left hand. Uh, so the left hand column is a very very common sort of tool that we use in meetings, right, Edward? <laughs> it's like so the right hand, Jeff, is what's being said. Around the table.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The left hand is what's being thought but not being spoken. Okay. Peter Senge and his his followers initiated this left-hand column. And the, the research suggests, he came out of MIT and Harvard has followed up on this somewhat, that teams need to have left-hand columns, that leaders uh-huh. need to ask: Are there any left-hand columns? Are there things people are thinking but not saying? Now, to Edward's point, if you don't have the trust. The psychological safety, you're not Correct going to get left hands. When I don't hear left hands and some disruption done in a constructive way, I worry about those teams. Yeah. So I love Peter Sangi. I love the way he talked about trust. He has this ladder of inquiry, assumptions you make, checking assumptions, asking open questions. What does that mean to you? What are you thinking about that? So that model has always stayed with me. And that work at Apple was was, was such a memory uh in, in mm-hmm. my mind. The other one is The Innovator's Dilemma mm-hmm. by Clayton Christensen. And that's the one that in some ways Edward had me move into the startup world. <laughs> so right. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. I won't go into that book, but it's just powerful around disruption and how doing the right thing is not always the thing that's going to take the company to the next level. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's like you got to disrupt. How do you disrupt? It's made us think about the way we coach at velocity mm. in different stages of where companies are in their product right. market fit, moving towards IPO and the kind of coaching that needs to be done. How do we disrupt sort of the way people are thinking? This is going too well. How do we do that in a way that gets us to a different place? So, uh, Clayton's work has always been very powerful around just uh, reforming and renorming companies and thinking about things in a different way. Those are my two books.
0: You guys made me think of something as you were talking. I I lead a cohort, a a group of people uh, through this thing called note-making mastery, and it's about building a personal knowledge management, uh, managing your personal knowledge in an effective way. And some of the people I'm working with, in fact, I was just meeting with a client this morning who was struggling with writing, with creating content and sitting down and staring Mm -hmm. at the blank page, the the blank Mm -hmm. screen. And you guys just illustrated a point I was trying to make to her this morning so well, in that you've just talked about a couple of books that have really informed your work considerably. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people miss, the sort of borrowed creativity or mm-hmm. remixing. Yeah, You've added to it, you've put it in your own words, but you're building on these concepts that you've learned about as that's they right. inform your work. Yes, And yes. It, it, there's really everything that comes out of you has been, has been informed by some experience yeah. that you've had or something you've read in the past, right?
1: Yeah. Good artists borrow, great artists steal.
0: <laughs> right. right? That's, Picasso, what, that's what
1: Pablo is Picasso said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, yeah. we actually, uh, I think a lot of creators get caught up on the need to be original. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I just have to come up with something original. I have to come up, with, come up with something original. And sometimes the originality actually is re-expressing something, expressing something in a way that other people can understand it. Right. Mm. Some of the, you know, best, uh, business books of the last 10 years, like bestsellers, were restated theses that someone else had written before, but wrote in kind of a clunky academic way. No one could really get to it. And then someone else came along, basically rewrote the book, but made it modern, made it approachable. And it was an overnight bestseller.
0: Yeah. Speaking of bestsellers, this book has spent at least a couple of weeks on the Wall Street Journal Sellers Mm -hmm. list last I I checked. Um, One one final question related to this area of personal knowledge management that I was talking about. I'd love for each of you to take a turn on this as to how you typically manage your personal knowledge, capture notes, things you want to remember, organizing them, distilling them down, ultimately creating with them. Uh, Edward, I'll, I'll start with you.
1: So I have to confess, Jeff, I've always been terrible at this.
0: <laughs> you, need,
1: you need to join my cohort. I really, do. but he's getting better, right, Edward? You're getting, getting better. better. But like, I was the guy in high school who just sat there and listened. Everyone else furiously took notes, and I just kind of watched and listened, or maybe gazed mm-hmm. out the out the window. And I would nine times out of ten, you know, do fine on the exam. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I should I should have gone to a harder high school, but <laughs> but you know, as I've gotten older, I've had to adapt right? Um, mm. So now I, I really like using Otter, which is mm. uh, a, a recording and auto transcribing tool, otter.ai, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I can't do two things at once. I can't be deeply engaged with a client and taking notes, right. right? I just get lost in taking notes. Oh, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? So I think one of the things my, our clients are, are paying us for is our completely undivided attention. Mm. So I try to give them that unique attention and then I might record our sessions, or uh, record an intake call with a client. So um, I don't forget you know, the key points. And the other thing I've started doing, uh, which John pointed to, is I'll take these little voice memos. John, I'd like to say that we wrote half this book, walking on the beach in Santa Cruz in front of your house there, <laughs> or me walking along the beach when I was in the middle of pandemic. I spent six months in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And you know, we would just walk along and record these conversations. And that is a very, for me, a powerful tool because I'm an audible person. Even though we wrote this book, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't come naturally to me to just sit down at a blank page and just put all my ideas out. Mm-hmm. I need to speak them and then come back to them later.
0: Mm. That is well said. And you know, you said you're not good at it I, I, or you're trying to get better at it. I, I'm finding that that describes how... 80, 90% of the public feels about their ability to take notes. That was me not long ago. Yeah. So, so I, I I feel your pain, I guess is what I'm trying to <laughs> <Thank> say. <you. laughs> uh, how, how about you, John? Anything uh, you bring to the table with that regard?
2: Yeah, well, I, I do like taking notes, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a big iPad user and I'm very big on, before I have a meeting with a client, I have a, an agenda set up that's mm-hmm. on Google Docs and they will come up with things that are really important to them. And I will step back and I, I do like tablets, right? So I use Remarkable. Do you know Remarkable? The Remarkable tablet?
0: I've got one, right? You've got one, on right.
2: <laughs> and I'll scribble notes. So so I'll have a something on the screen. Yeah. I'll have the iPad thing. And, and and I do like tracking where we are, accountability of what, what are we doing? What, are we, what did we say last time? I like keeping track of that, right? Mm. Not in such a formal way that it, it interferes with a conversation. I'll let that go. But I do like having some structure. And I like preparing for meetings with the remarkable by saying, so what's the biggest breakthrough that I want to get to in this meeting? Mm -hmm. What's the conversation that I need to have that I'm not having, you know, applying Edward, our, our own book. What, what am I afraid of? You know, Mm -hmm. as coaches, we have our fears as well. Mm -hmm. What am I fearful with this client? And yet that's the conversation. So I'll write that down and I may not do it in that meeting because of something, but I will get to it. So I, I like preparing, my mindset. I like having a mindset and I like writing the mindset outcome down on Remarkable and having it in front of me. Mm. Uh, Anyway, uh, so, and then staying fluid and staying uh, adaptable and flexible to the moment, but also uh, making sure that some of the things I thought about get out in the conversation.
0: It's funny. You mentioned the remarkable. I I, I talked about meeting with a client this morning. I'm meeting with another one this afternoon who I believe I inspired to pick up a remarkable. And (laughs) part of what he wants to talk to me about today is how I use it in my workflow. Uh, And so (laughs) we're having that conversation. (laughs) It's odd that you mentioned that. I I find so few people have one of these things, Uh, but the more I talk to authors, the more I find that uh, many authors are using that device too. Love it. Yes. Yes. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, The book, again, is called Leading with Heart, Five Conversations, speaking of fantastic conversations that unlock creativity, purpose, and results. It's Edward Sullivan and John Baird. Again, weeks now on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. Well worth your time doing great work guys thank you for being here really really appreciate it thank you so much
2: thanks so much jeff appreciate it very much
0: got a lot of great book recommendations there from john and edward if you'd like to connect with them on social media or follow up on those book recommendations i've included everything on the show notes page for this episode like i do every single week you can find that at read to 434 for episode 434 if you want to find out more about getting on the notifications list for the next note making mastery cohort you can either go to that same link or directly to the notifications page at readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. And you'll be among the first notified when I offer the next note-making mastery cohort. As I look ahead, we've got some great guests and some fantastic books scheduled through about the end of October at this point, and I'm excited for you to hear those in the coming weeks and months. Thank you for joining me each and every week. I really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this time. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead.